from Psalm 45. We are in the second to last uh, psalm in our Summer of Psalms series. And I didn't really plan this out, this introduction, so it might not be a good one. Uh, thanks, Miranda. You're so sweet. Uh, but this, this hit me kind of hard this week. One, it was a difficult uh, passage to really dig into and, and apply to my soul. Uh, and it hit me in just a season of uh, discouragement. You know, we're trying to buy this, these houses. Uh, things keep falling through. Uh, just different things always come with that, like uh, the emotion of like, oh, well, we just planned our, the next 50 years at this house, and then it's ripped away from us. And uh, there's just, it's kind of just been gut shot after gut shot with that. And we started with this sermon here. Uh, I, I think that would be good for us here because I think, well, I know there's many of us who struggle with discouragement or are in a hard season of life that, you know, we walk past each other here at the front doors and we have this facade of like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm good. And, uh, but really deep down, probably not. You know, just life's never easy. Something's always coming up. You think you're in a smooth sailing uh, part of your life, and then wham, something happens. And so I, I think, I certainly hope that this psalm would speak to those of us here today dealing with discouragement or uh, disappointments in our lives. I know all of the Bible speaks to that, but I hope uh, today it does as well. So let me, uh, let's read the whole passage again, and we're going to split it into two, two different sections, and we'll go from there. So let's uh, read along again. Psalm 45, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured out upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach uh, your awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. 
in place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth, and I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Would you pray with me? God, we submit ourselves to your word today. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for putting this text in front of us as we bow before your word, as we bow before your sovereignty in your hand, the Psalm 45, for whatever reason, this psalm that seems to have nothing to do with us, you have here in front of us. Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done in our lives, who you are to the church that I think we will see today from this psalm. And of course, how you've given yourself completely for the good of your church. And Holy Spirit, guide us today protect my words, encourage us through this text, that it may carry us through this next week in our busy season, in our discouragements, in our disappointments. Uh, meet us here and help us leave those things at the door so we may hear and see these things clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so Psalm 45, known as the only wedding psalm, out of 150 psalms, there's only one of these. And most theologians, John Calvin uh, among them, believe that this was written to King Solomon, the son of King David, when he was getting married to the princess of Egypt. That someone was moved to write, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme, and I address my verses to the king, and my tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. This man who wrote this was just so moved by the splendor, possibly, most likely, of King Solomon as he's getting married, that he, he wrote this psalm to him. And then uh, tradition goes that this then was used in all subsequent Israelite kings at their weddings, sung to them. T.J. Betts, who's a professor who uh, specializes in these psalms, talking about, thinking about the context, he, he writes, the reason the psalm was written was because the psalmist was unable to retain the abundant warmth he felt for his good and excellent king, which was a noble theme. The psalm came from the heart. However, it is not just an emotional outburst or mindless babble. Instead, it was the eloquent product of the psalmist's endeavor to thoughtfully construct and convey his admiration of his king with maximum effort and meticulous precision. Yet we don't, because it doesn't tell us here, we don't find out the proper context of this psalm and the target of which it was written until nearly a thousand years later, until the author of Hebrews in the first chapter tells us who this is about. And if you've been kind of paying attention to all these themes of the, of the book of Psalms, you, you probably are guessing who it's actually about. Right in the, in the whole first chapter of the book of Hebrews, the author endeavors to begin his theme that Jesus is the greatest, the greatest above all, that there's no one greater. And what's interesting is he chooses right off the bat angels to compare Jesus to. He say, oh yeah, angels are great and they're, they're perfect heavenly beings unless they sin and fall and they radiate when they, they come down to the earth and they're protecting the garden and they minister to Jesus when he's tempted by the devil. Yet, 
have you ever heard angels spoken of like this to make the case of Jesus' greater uh, position? And one of the times in the first chapter of Hebrews, and you can go read that later if you'd like, one of the times he does that, he chooses this chapter of the book of Psalms to do that. And so that helps us understand that all of this chapter is about Jesus as the king, husband, and then his bride. But it's not about, only about, possibly King Solomon. It's also about Jesus. And so that's my first point. I've just got two of them. We're just split this bad boy in half and deal with it in two sections. Our first section just comes from verses 1 through 9. So let's just read that again quickly. I'll try to move quicker this time. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme, and I dress my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And here's where the author of Hebrews grabs his citation to show us this is about Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And your right hand stands the queen of gold, in gold of Ophir. And so we know that if the original intent was to an actual king, like a physical king in ancient Israel. The human author was using these kingly metaphors and phrases to describe the glory of that king. But the Holy Spirit was actually using that to one day speak of Christ. In the nine verses, they're proclaiming the beauty of Jesus using these metaphors that grace is poured out upon his lips, that he would gird the sword on his thigh as the mighty one, that he would ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, and that his throne is eternal, expressing from the author's heart in kingly terms that the, in the glory and majesty of, of Jesus that he reigns over his people. But I think what is interesting here is that the Holy Spirit uses a wedding psalm to do this. In this context of a wedding psalm, what is it that we should take away specifically about Christ? Because we've done a lot of work on Jesus as being king this summer, as him being the high priest this summer. But here in the wedding psalm, it gives us a new role that Jesus plays in the life of his church. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, helps us understand that Jesus is also the husband of the church. That's what we're seeing here with the help of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is also the perfect and good husband. 
of the church. This is where Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. He writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I think that this psalm is pointing us to understand that Jesus, where this king, even though he was royal, and if it was Solomon, the most man, wise man yet to live, was an imperfect man, being married to an imperfect woman, even at, though he was a king. And here we start to see that Jesus is the perfect husband to the church, fulfilling all of those roles that a husband does or should fulfill in marriage. Jesus does perfectly with his bride. But what does that do for the believer today? What hope does that do? Just that knowledge or understanding that Jesus is the perfect husband for the imperfect church. What hope does that give us today? Why should that matter? Why should we walk away going, oh, cool, Jesus is the husband of us? Well, we see that in the letter of Ephesians, that men are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Well, how did Jesus love the church? Paul wrote it in there. I think we often miss this as we read that. We just constantly are reading that men should be, do better, and men should do better, and men should do better, and we miss the application of Jesus in here, of the one who actually does it perfectly. Paul writes, Husband, loves your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And there, there are three ways I see that Jesus is the perfect loving husband to his bride. First of all, that he gave himself up for her. There was not one portion of his life that he kept secret or private for himself. On your behalf, on our behalf, as the, the local body, as a part of the greater body of the church over the world, there's nothing that Jesus said, well, I'll die for you, but I'm going to hold this part back. 
And you guys got to figure that out on yourself, by yourselves. Not one part did he do that. Jesus, who, I just love to ring this bell, in perfect unity with the Trinity. There's nothing that existed outside of those three, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. They didn't ha- need more love. They didn't need more food. They didn't need, they didn't need anything outside of those three to exist. It was perfect. Nothing was wrong. And then because of his infinite knowledge and his plan for the world, we were all created and fallen into sin. And so one of the persons of the perfect trinity decides or is sent to be carried by a woman who was sinful, birthed by her, raised by a man who was not biologically, biologically his father, who was also sinful, treated for however many years as though he's not Jesus, king of the universe, raised up, lived perfectly, performed miracle after miracle, healed countless people of physical and spiritual ailments, defeated the devil when he was tempted and offered everything in this world, Defeated the the devil. All of that leading to be tortured and killed as a murderer and a traitor and a thief on the cross for his bride. For you, every one of you that is saved. Thinking about you as he's hanging on the cross, pouring himself out for you so that our broken relationship with the Father could be reconciled perfectly through him. That's one thing he does for his bride. Secondly, we see here that Jesus sanctifies his church. He makes his bride perfect over the life of the church. He makes it possible even for our sins to be washed away in the eyes of the Father because of his death on the cross. But the process of sanctification, it's one one that continues through our lives. Wayne, Wayne Grudem, systematic theologian, he defines sanctification as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ himself. That through Jesus' work, through the Spirit working in you, you become less and less like the unsaved person that you were and more and more like Jesus every day. One professor uh, in seminary kind of compared it to a really positive stock market. It's got a positive trend upwards. But there's, you're not 100% sanctified until we're dead and with him in heaven where we will live perfectly. But until then, you are always less and less like you were when you were saved by the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Because you are a member of his bride, Jesus does this work for you. Because of Jesus, you are no longer the person you were because he is the husband of the church. Third way that I see within this text is that Jesus does not let us go. He doesn't let us go. He doesn't divorce us. He does not do away with us. 
He doesn't toss us aside when it becomes hard or when we change or something bad happens in our life. And it's been well defined in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that nothing in this life can rip us from the grasp of Jesus. Nothing. I'm refer you to Romans 8 and John 6 and John 10, that nothing we do, nothing that can happen to us can take our position as saved people of his bride because Jesus doesn't bat 250, right? Doesn't bat 310 and make it into the all-star game. He bats 1,000, 100% every single time. He will not lose what is his. He just won't. This reminded me of one of our family's favorite songs. It was written about 100 years ago. Uh, Not like some of the good ones, like 500 years ago. 100 years ago, it's not bad. And it was a pastor, uh, song, writer that was dealing with some church members who were struggling in their faith and were thinking that they could lose it. Uh, must have been something like, well, I have just sinned. And Christians don't sin like this. Christians are supposed to be better, so I must not be a Christian. And the faith that I confessed at one time just wasn't the real deal. So maybe I should be doing this again, or maybe I'm just not a Christian at all. And this pastor, not knowing how to express this well to his people, reached out to a lyricist and said, I need a song that we can sing that will help me convey to my people that Jesus is not letting them go. And this lyricist wrote back seven songs, apparently. Uh, I was only able to find the one. Uh, that he will hold me fast. And it's one that we, just, we sing all the time here. And it's so good to proclaim and sing to one another these lyrics. Hold me fast, that I am tightly secured to the end. I'm not going to be released or let go. That there's no worry about doubt of our salvation when they arise, because they will. Or worries that come tomorrow, because Jesus holds me fast. Let me just read a couple. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. Well, this just should blow us away because of the knowledge of our own sin. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall be last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. And I think that's what we can understand and take away from Psalm 45, is Jesus as this kingly husband to his church who does not fail, who does not lose or make mistakes, that through our sanctification, through his salvation, that he is the perfect husband. And that's good news. That's good news for us. Because either we, uh, well, there's probably three parties here, right? Either we're uh, sinful husbands, or we've been married to sinful husbands, 
or we will be sinful husbands one day, or we were before. Right? And we know the difficulty of being a husband. We know how much we fail, right, every day. We never live up to the standard that Jesus is. But this is the good news for us. That in all the ways that the husband should be for his wife, Jesus does that perfectly for you. That he loves you perfectly. He listens to you perfectly. He supports you perfectly. His door is always open to you perfectly. He meets all of your needs. And each and every member of this church, his church, is no longer a loner, but has their identity other than yourself. You're no longer just you who doesn't belong to anyone. You belong to Jesus. And if you're a member or want to be a member, you belong to this body. Never again are you alone. That's why I think gives hope to his bride. So moving on to the, the last section. Verses 10 through the end. Um, my point is the church, the church obviously, following that, is the bride of Christ. Let's read that real quick. Verse 10 to the end. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him, and the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Here the psalmist changes course from praising the king husband to speaking to his bride. And since we already understand the context, because it was just ex explained brilliantly, right? we all understand it, that we're the bride. All of us are the bride. Even the men, okay? We're all the bride of, of Christ as the church. That the church, she should never forget where we came from, and who we are now married to. Now that we have a little more insight of what it means that Jesus is the husband, I think we should think about what it means to be the bride of Christ as the church, as a local body, congregation of the church. Is church the church, the building you go to on Sunday mornings? Because that's what we say, right? Well, I'm going to go up to the church. More properly, it's probably the building the church owns. Right? Is church Sunday morning the thing you do to check that box, take away a little bit of guilt because you did what you're supposed to and people saw you there and they greeted you as you walked in and now I get to go do whatever I want the rest of the week? Well, not if we're the bride of Christ. If that's the definition of the church, is the body of Jesus. And there's a few points about 
the purpose of the church. What is the church and what does she do? Uh, given by Wayne Grudem, as I was kind of reading through his section, there's three purposes. The first purpose of the church is to, of course, worship God. We worship Jesus specifically in Christianity because everything that we are, everything we are becoming is completely attributed to Jesus. The only thing we ever bring to the table in this relationship is our sin. Like, oh, I did it again. I did it again. But Jesus will forgive it again. The only thing that we do besides worship, it seems, is sin. But the, one of the purpose to worship God, in Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We worship God. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold fast, fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, that we, should not, that we shouldn't forsake the gathering right, to worship and encourage one another. And we worship because of what he's done for us as the good creator, the loving father, the perfect obedient son, the spirit who works on your behalf, who indwells you. We worship. Secondly, the purpose of the church is to nurture. To nurture one another. Paul wrote in Ephesians that the church should equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I think in other words, it, we should be discipling each other. We should be nurturing one another. We should be encouraging one another. And discipleship is just the training of the less mature by the more mature in Christ. I know it's something that's been embedded in deeply in the roots of this body, that we would help people love Jesus and grow in him. And that happens through intimate relationships with the body. That's a grace given to the church to help us grow, to nurture and disciple one another. And Pastor Tom could be up here preaching for a decade and preach that and preach that but it is something that you need to, to want. You need to love. You need to know that you need it. That you plug in with one another because you know and you understand and you want those relationships. Because being a member of a church are those things. It'd be like, hey, let's get married and I promise uh, that if you get sick, I'll take care of you. And uh, I'll tell you if I don't love you, uh, but I'm not going to say I love you, but I'll tell you if it changes. And uh, yeah, we'll just go from there. And then day in and day out, you don't really do anything together. You don't see each other. You live in separate houses that just be crazy town. Even though a few of you would probably like to live in separate houses, that would be crazy town. And then we'd come and be like, let's move you in together, right? Let's do the good thing. 
In the same way as members of a body, as we function together, it's just as awkward and weird to say, hey, I promise to be one of you, but I'll see you one day a week. I've got other things. I don't need you. You need me. And if I decide I need you, that's when I'll start to plug in. That's not the point of the church. That's not what we're doing here. That's not how we grow. That's not how I grow. It's not how you grow, saying, I'll be here when I'm here. Otherwise, uh, see you later. It's not what we've promised to do one another, because that's how we start falling through the cracks. That's how we stop growing. That's how we lose our focus on the gospel and, and gospel centrality. And Jesus is the center of our life. The point of the church is to nurture and to, and to gather. And the final pur- uh, purpose of the church is given as evangelism and mercy. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples. And he also commands us to be uh, merciful on those around us, inside and outside of the church. It's not just in here. I'll be nice to you if you're also a member. Maybe kind of nice to you if you just attend. But if you're outside of this place, I can be as cold-hearted as I, as I want. That's not what his example was. We saw his act of mercy on the crowds when he divided bread and fish for upwards to 20,000 people twice. We see that in his story of the great... Uh, the, the, Samar- the Good Samaritan. And then, then there's no other greater place we see his example of mercy and love and kindness than on the cross. The, thing, the last place that he should have been is where he went because he loved you and had mercy on you. And we emulate that. That's what a part of being the body of Christ is, is be imitators of Jesus. Because Jesus cared for the church, we also do. Our hope, to wrap up, our hope by being the church is that we're neither left alone by Jesus and we're not either left alone by the church. That as we can be loners and want to pull away, especially as sin begins to grow in our lives, that being a part of this church, especially this church, is a promise that you're never going to be alone again. We have elder meetings We all get together and we talk about everything that's going on and how we can be better servants of you. But as you begin, if you pull away and you pull away, one, no, we're coming back after you. You're only going to get so far. Two, you're only hurting yourself as you do that. We are here for you. This church is here for you. The members have promised to be here for you. That's our hope that our husband is so good and perfect, and that the bride, the church, is here for you, to imitate Christ for you. So I I just want to encourage you. I'm going to wrap up. It's been long enough. Plug in. Jump in somewhere. Got a couple other things we'll announce in a few weeks as far as the fall. Jump in and invest. Like here, is where people truly love and care for you. There's other places too. I'm not making Springbrook be the only one. What I'm saying here is where we love you and care for you. Okay. Let me pray as we wrap up and we'll tra- uh, transition to communion. Father, we thank you. Uh, through this uh, wedding psalm, 
that I think and I hope points us to Jesus as the best and perfect husband and king of his people. That it means that you will always love us perfectly as the husband, as every husband should and fall short. You will do perfectly. You will carry us. You will love us. You will be merciful. You will listen. You won't be harsh and critical. Thank you for those gifts. We thank you for the gift of the church as well. Help us, as we always tend to withdraw, help us move forward and meet with each other and read scriptures with one another and pray for one another so that we may, you may help us grow through those things and we're not falling through the cracks and we're not laying in bed at night wondering why we're so lonely and what we're missing and what we're missing is you and the body that you gave us. So I thank you for that. Thank you for those here. Thank you for this church, Springbrook, and uh, thank you for your son, and, and I pray this in his name. Amen.